prayer. Father, Lord, you're so good. And as we um, just turn our pages in our Bibles and shuffle our papers and get ready, we pray that we would really continue, Lord, to hear from you, not only in word, but in song and in spirit and in truth. And we know that uh, where your spirit is, there's freedom. And where we are gathered, Lord, your authoritative uh, declaration and your word holds true. And so, Lord, we pray for your message uh, to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in 2008, there was a song written by a contemporary Christian artist by the name of Stephen Curtis Chapman. Anybody know this fella? All right, old school, I guess. Here we are. The song is entitled Cinderella. And back then, as a um, daughterless fellow, it didn't have a lot of meaning to me. I used to mock songs like Butterfly Kisses and other stuff like that. Oh, it's so cheesy. Now every time I hear it, I turn to tears. But... Let me tell you a little bit about the story behind this song because it's quite overwhelming. It was written by Mr. Chapman one night after bathing his two daughters, Stevie Joy and Maria Sue, and putting them to bed. And as is so often the case, he remembers that the girls were stalling him, putting on their Cinderella gowns as he was trying to hurry them off to bed so he could go down to his studio and get back to work. He says that he refused to read them a bedtime story that night, but after walking out, he felt God telling him the name of his oldest daughter, Emily Chapman. She was in her 20s, and he remembered that now he had kind of rushed through some of the moments in her childhood because of his career and all the pressures and demands He remembered how he had a chance, a second chance, not to do it again with his younger daughters who were adopted from China. He felt convicted and started writing this song, Cinderella, to remind himself to cherish the moments that he would have with his family, no matter how brief they might be. This is coming from Wikipedia, then I'm quoting directly. Um, this is what he says. He says, you know, Emily is now 20 years old. She's grown up, and I used to have these moments with her. You know, tuck her in bed every night when I was home, bath time, story time, like that. And I rushed through a lot of those trying to get back to my studio, but I thought, man, it goes by so fast. My wife and I have the luxury of having a grown daughter and almost grown sons, and now we get the chance to do it again. Are we going to do the same thing? Are we going to rush through those moments, or am I going to have enough sense to stop and slow down in those moments, even if they're just going to be a few extra minutes to enjoy it and let my little girls know that I'm not going to rush through it? Chapman says he wrote the song in about an hour, which is really unusual for him, and his daughters think this song is the greatest song he ever wrote. Not because it's about them, but instead because it has the word Cinderella in it. Several months later, in May of 2008, one of these same daughters, Maria Sue, was run over in their driveway and died as a result. When the moment comes and crisis strikes, what do we do? 
How in the world do we overcome something like that? So look at Mark chapter 5 this morning. The interesting thing is that regardless of the circumstance, no matter what situation you're in, whether yesterday was the worst day of your life or yesterday was the very best day of your life, the answer in every circumstance is exactly the same. How do I overcome? What is that one thing? What is it? And how do we do it? Mark chapter 5 verse 21. Jesus is getting ready to cross back over the lake again. If you remember last time he crossed the lake, it wasn't exactly smooth sailing. His return flights, however, are going to be a bit better this time. No encounters on the sea, but as soon as he hits the shore, bam, there it is again. Isn't that the way life goes? Like as soon as you step out of the boat, it hits you. Such is the case here in Mark chapter 5 verse 21. The word's going to be up on the screen. I'm going to read it to you. Follow along in your Bible or on your device or Read it with us up on the screen. Mark chapter 5 says this. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, Jairus fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. A great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had was no better but rather grew worse she'd heard the reports about jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment for she said if i touch even his garments i will be made well and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease And Jesus, perceiving that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Get away from me. You had no right to do that. No. Daughter. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, here's the command. Do not fear, only believe. 
Do not fear, only believe. And he f- allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. See, it's too early for everyone to know exactly what Jesus is about. All the Herodians and the synagogue rulers and the Pharisees hate him and are plotting to kill him. Remember, he's speaking in parables so that only the select few get a chance to get the inside information. So at this point, he has not gone public. Jesus has not come out at this point. And so only a few get to follow him in. And he came to the house of the ruler. He saw the commotion and the people weeping and wailing loudly. And he entered and said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now again, he's not talking about soul sleep. The the child is actually dead. But Jesus is using a double entendre here or a double meaning so that all the people outside aren't necessarily in the know quite yet. And they laughed at him. Like people do, right? You make a claim based on faith and people laugh at you. But he put them all outside. The laughers, those without faith, stay away. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, and taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them, it's not time yet, that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me give you the context really quickly for this section so you know what's going on and then we'll apply it to our lives. So the way I'm basically going to move forward is I'm going to give you the context and sort of compare and contrast their their socioeconomic status, what what life was like for them in their culture, in their world. And then I will compare their problems one to another and then I'll say, what is it, how does that impact us. So we're going to look at Jairus and the woman and see what it was like for them. And then we'll take that same command that Jesus gives them and apply it to us. So first of all, looking at their status, um, they're obviously very different in the most clear ways. Right away, you have a man and a woman. Now in our society, that means some stuff, but in their society, that meant way, way more. What happens is way back when, 2,000 years ago, um, post-Mosaic law under Judaism, the women are going to be very much a second-class citizen. They are not considered a reliable witness in court. There's no such thing as voting for them. When they go to the temple, they don't go to the inner precincts, but instead they stay outside in the court of the Gentiles and the women. And they're not allowed to like go out and have a job or any of these other things that women in our culture today are allowed to do. So their place in society is second class or very low. Furthermore, she'll have no authority, she'll have no respect, and what you read from the text is that with regard to this woman who remains unnamed, is that she was 
um, economically disadvantaged. She'd been to the doctor's office for 12 years, and that's a lot of bills. Even today, if, even if you have insurance, even if you only have copays, 12 years worth of copays is a lot of money. And there she is spending everything she has on this physician, and after 12 years, she's done. It's over. She has no more hope left. And what you see then in Jairus is really the exact opposite. Here is a male who is a synagogue ruler, which means that not only is he a male and allowed to go in, but he's actually at the, the top of the ladder. He is a ruler. And therefore, no doubt, he is also economically advantaged. He's doing well financially. He's educated. He's intelligent. He's not that she wasn't, but he's, he's clearly a ruler, so he's moved up. And he's essentially at the top of his game in this society. So he's doing really well, and she's doing really poorly. And you can see that a little bit in their approach. Like the woman, when she approaches Jesus, she tries to be very subtle. She sneaks up from behind and sort of brushes against him. Whereas the man, on the other hand, walks boldly right up in front of Jesus and is like, Hey, you, come eat at my place. That's a very bold move. That's uh, something only someone of significant stature could do. And as a result, when you look at these two, you can see that their situation in life is as different as it could possibly be. And yet, even though their socioeconomic status was completely different, their problems were nearly the same. And what I mean by that is this. Both of their problems were very frightening. Both of their problems were beyond their ability to help. Both of their situations were completely desperate, and both of them were Entirely dependent upon Jesus. In both situations, there is essentially no hope. If you look at Jairus, he's really stepping out. Even though he's a ruler, what he's actually doing is committing career suicide. Earlier in the Gospels, Jesus had got into it with the Pharisees and rulers of the synagogue. And the Herodians and the leaders of the synagogue are plotting to kill Jesus. And so now this guy, who is aligned with that party, is coming out face to face and inviting Jesus to come to his house. This is as career limiting as it can possibly get. And as a result, what you see is that this guy is desperate. He is willing to risk everything he's worked for his entire life so that his daughter can be made well. So too, the woman, she... Because she is bleeding under the Old Testament law, she would be considered ceremonially unclean. So not only is like she herself unclean, but anyone who touches her would also be considered unclean. They had all kinds of laws and traditions about, okay, if she sits on this couch, you have to clean this couch and da, 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 da. And it's an embarrassment. It's a shame for her. I can remember putting it, okay, putting it in real terms without trying to be too gross or too whatever. I can remember the first time I learned about um, the menstrual cycle in high school or thereabouts, and this one young lady went rushing out of our youth group, and we're all kind of like looking around, and I was really concerned about her. And I kept asking, is she okay? Is she okay? And later, someone explained to me the process and what was going on. And I was like, oh, okay. So 
it's embarrassing, right? Like no one wants to be caught with a bodily function happening out of control in public. This is her reality for 12 years. And so she's doing everything she can to stay out of the limelight. The very last thing that she wants to happen is for somebody to notice. And guess what Jesus does? He notices. And not only does he notice, but he calls her out in front of everybody. She was trying to sneak up from behind and slink away without no notice. And Jesus stops everything, the huge crowd, and says, Boop, you. Ah, that is the last thing she wants. And similarly... Jairus, his daughter, is at the point of death. Like, 911, help. She's breathing. She can't breathe. Get here now. And the 911 operator says, sorry, my favorite show's on. Can you hold, please? What? Jesus, come on. My daughter is dying. Hold on. I got to talk to this woman. She's been like that for 12 years. She can make it another day. Could you please come to my house? Why do we have to stop now? Hold on. There's something I got to take care of. Oh. Both of these people get the very last thing they ever want. Jarius is delayed. His daughter's dying and he's delayed. I mean, if you get the call and say your daughter's dying, I mean... I'm just saying, speed limits, they're kind of out the window, right? You're like, (laughs) his daughter's dying, he's delayed. She's completely humiliated. Jesus calls her out in front of everybody. What is going on here? What is he doing? This is the very last thing either of them would want. And you know what? As soon as that happens, it's like he's delaying on purpose. And then in a little bit, The synagogue's ruler's servants come to him and say, your daughter is dead. Ah. It's too late. It's too late. If you would have only come sooner. We tried. Now there's no hope. It's over. All is lost. And what is Jesus' command to the ruler? Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. Believe what? What is there left to believe? She's done, it's over. Believe? Got nothing now. The woman who's been bleeding for 12 years... With no possible chance. She's gone to John Hopkins and university and everywhere else. There's nothing. Male has put up their hands and said, we don't know. Do not fear. Only believe. What in the world is Jesus saying? Well, this is the point where the pastor goes religious, right? Says, have faith. It's okay. Everybody smile. Go home. This is concrete. Jesus is saying something real here that applies to us in every single day of our life, regardless of the circumstance we're in. What is it? 
When the girl is dead, what is there to believe? When the doctors don't work, what is left? Do not fear, only believe. Do you know what Jesus is saying at this point? Do you know what he's saying? This is what Jesus means. Believing in Jesus means when the stuff hits the fan and we want to freak out, Jesus looks us in the eye and says, I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. And we look at him in the eye and all those voices whisper in our ear and they say, she's dead. It won't work. There's no hope. It's over. And we say, I believe you. I believe. Like, I don't know how. I don't know why. But I believe. When Jesus says, do not fear, only believe, what he means is, he's not done yet. But Jesus, she's dead. He's not done yet. But Jesus, the doctors can't help. He's not done yet. But Jesus, my life is an absolute wreck. He's not done yet. But Jesus, this is never going to change. Come on. He's not done yet. Every single situation that you have ever faced is answered in the same way. Do not fear. Only believe. Jesus isn't done. See, overcoming requires faith. And what faith is, is simply looking at Jesus and saying, I believe. Like, when you say that, I believe you. When the moment arrives, when the crisis strikes, when it's every single day, every single moment of your life, you live in the same way, by grace, through faith. And what does that mean? Well, in this story... See, we've got to be really careful because unfortunately there's some wolves out there and they've taken this faith thing and made it something it's not. So here's, here's what happens here. In this passage, the little girl is raised from the dead. But guess what? Later in life, she dies. The woman has been healed for now but she's going to grow old and face the same decrepit, disgusting decay that we all do. They get their miracle, but their miracle is only for the moment. And I'm afraid that some of us assume if we don't get our miracle for the moment, then our faith doesn't work. But the reality is our faith, our belief in Jesus is more than just the miracle in the moment. You see, what happens here is the promise is not that if you believe in Jesus that you get what you want right now. But the promise is if you believe in Jesus, you will be resurrected. See, the little girl's resurrection was a hint of what is to come. And Jesus' resurrection 
is a hint of what is to come. Just like Christ, so too shall we be. He is the first fruits. We're the second. The individual miracle is not the ultimate miracle, but instead the ultimate miracle is the resurrection. And listen, church, this is why we eat. This is why we eat. What? What do you mean by that? Twilight, do you have any guesses? Okay, hold still. I just called you out. I'll explain. In church, we have fellowship meals, yes, but we do one thing that's even more important than that, and that's called the Lord's Supper. And a lot of people in the Lord's Supper, they look at it and they say, okay, death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, body and blood, we got that. But there's one very important part that we often leave out. And that part is in 1 Corinthians 11.26, where, where it is re, uh, relayed that Jesus said this. He said, for off, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So the commemoration of the Lord's Supper is not only his death, burial, and resurrection, but also his return. We're doing this to anticipate the future resurrection. So you look back in this passage and what do you see? When the little girl is raised from the dead, what does she do? She eats. This is a hint, a foretaste of what is to come. The Lord's Supper is a hint, a foretaste of what is to come. The real miracle is not that little moment, but yet what is to come. See, our faith applies to us in every moment of every day, no matter what Jesus says to us, I'm not done yet. And that's the point. Right now, right here, today, in this moment, Jesus is not done yet. The best is yet to come. The future is better. Even though life may get worse, the future is better. Let me put this in really real terms for me. Um, Several of you have seen me walk out here on a boot in some Sundays. That's because I've had this thing called plantar fasciitis. Now, someone asked me today before the service, how are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm trying to practice what I preach. (laughs) It's great when the Lord does that to you. Here, you get to have faith too. Oh, come on, Lord. It's just for the people out there. No. Here I am, two surgeries, two years, several injections, physical therapy, nighttime splint, fancy shoes. I get up in the morning, and every day, guess what? My stinking foot still hurts. Oh, it's so frustrating. I've gone to lots of physicians. It's not working. Where are you, Lord? You know how many people prayed? We've had the elders of the church pray for me. I'm a pastor. Come on. (laughs) What? What is going on? So many people have prayed. So many people have encouraged my foot still hurts. What if the Lord's message to me is, hey, I'm not done yet. Not done. May not mean I get my miracle in the moment. May mean my miracle is that God's grace is sufficient to sustain me the rest of my life. Even if my foot hurts, maybe I can get to the point where my foot hurts and I'm not grumpy. 
That's a miracle. <laughs> Amen. That's a real miracle. It's when God heals you, not necessarily on the outside, but on the inside. And eventually he promises the healing comes on the outside as well. But that may or may not be in the moment. And we don't know. And here's what real faith is. Real faith says, I am willing even to wait. I'm willing even to wait. Jairus is like, hey man, my daughter, you gotta come now. And Jesus is like, wait. This woman's like, it's been 12 years. And Jesus is like, wait. I'm like, my foot still hurts. And Jesus says, wait. And if we have faith, then what we do is we look him in the eyes and we say, okay. I believe you. Because you're not done yet. That's where every single one of us in this room today is at in our life. Jesus is not done yet. Do not fear, only believe. You may or may not have heard of the medieval reformer by the name of Martin Luther, the one that the Lutheran churches are named after. His was not just, uh, you know, easy trip through life. He faced many difficulties, including having a death threat pronounced on his head. One of the lowest points of his life, his beloved daughter, Magdalena, barely 14 years of age, was stricken with the plague. Broken hearted, he knelt beside her bed and begged God to release her from the pain. And when she had died... And the carpenters were nailing down the lid to the coffin. Luther screamed out, hammer away. She'll rise. Jesus isn't done. This is why she ate. This is why we eat. Because overcoming requires faith. Faith says, okay. We believe. Jairus had to shift his focus from his dead little girl to his living Lord. We have to do the exact same. No matter how hopeless our situation is, even if it seems like it's over, we have to shift our focus from our hopeless situation to our living Lord. I want to be pretty clear about something before we conclude I'm making a lot of big promises here like I'm saying that all things in him a guarantee Jesus wins I'm saying because of the resurrection for those who believe someday everything will be just right even if it's not now I promise if this were my word it doesn't mean a thing but if because it's from Christ everything's okay but here's the thing This is only for those who believe. This is only for those who believe. This is only for those who believe in Jesus. Someone asked me earlier this week, they said, hey, I know there's a lot of stuff in your sermons that you leave out. True. Believe it or not, there's all kinds of stuff I don't say. The word is so deep and rich, there's infinite more things here to be discovered. And they said, We're getting the main point, but can you give us one deep thing? Just one. Just give me one. And here's the one I want to give you for this week. It's this. 
What's interesting about these situations, we talked about ceremonial stuff earlier. Um, the little girl's dead. That means she's ceremonially unclean. The woman is bleeding. That means she's ceremonially unclean. But in both of these situations, you know what Jesus does? He touches them. He breaks all the codes and laws and rules that would have applied to a rabbi. And instead of Jesus becoming unclean, what happens? They become clean. See, God is not afraid of sin. I think some of us, because of the way we think about God and his holiness, we think, oh no, he's afraid of it. Like, we understand he doesn't like it. We understand he won't be around it. But maybe we think he just shuns it. Or maybe we think it'll affect him like it affects us. Like it'll mess him up if he bumps into it. But the reality is, God is like this all-consuming fire. And when he comes into the presence of sin, he's going to do one or two things. One, for those who are unrepentant, he's going to obliterate it. Two, for those who are repentant, he will purge it. He will come into the situation and he will touch it. And he himself will not become unclean, but they will become clean. And this is this transfer principle of substitutionary penal atonement where our sin goes to him and his righteousness goes to us. But even though we become righteous, he doesn't become sinful. Here's the miracle of God. Jesus touches what is unclean and makes it clean. In death, in bleeding, and whatever, it doesn't matter for those who believe. Do not fear, only believe. Listen, if you've never believed that Jesus died on the cross, paid your price, rose from the grave, and is coming back again, then you're still in the unclean position. And if you want to be healed, you have to be forgiven first. And it doesn't matter if you are a successful business owner at the top of your game or if you are at the bottom of the ladder, the person in society that everyone hates. Neither status matters before God. The only thing that matters is faith. For the woman who's bleeding and for the synagogue ruler, and for us today, it's the exact same. Do not fear, only believe. The only thing that matters is faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. After Stephen Curtis Chapman's daughter died said that he was pretty sure he will never, ever, ever sing that song again. Written earlier in the year, on July 11th, when he was singing on stage, he felt God talking to him through the very songs that he was singing, convicting him. He realized that he needed to repent and believe the hope that he proclaimed in his songs. So from October 9th, 2008 to November 8th, 2008, he went on tour with Michael W. Smith in the United Tour and sang the song Cinderella. In 2009, at the GMA Dove Awards, Chapman took home the Artist of the Year and Songwriter of the Year, 
during the ceremony performed the song and received a standing ovation. That song, Cinderella, took on a whole new meaning for the Chapman family. While originally it had been written as a message of love to cherish parenthood while it lasted, it acquired the even greater meaning of the frailty of life and how suddenly it can change. Looking back on it now, I wonder if we would change the title from Cinderella to Sleeping Beauty. Do not fear, only believe. She's not dead, she's asleep. When the prince comes, he will take her hand and say, Get up, little girl, arise. Do not fear, only believe. Father, we thank you. For your only son, Jesus, who died on the cross in our place. Thank you that he takes our sin, our guilt, and even our sorrow. And raises it from the dead. Lord, this is one miracle, but we know there are many more yet to come. Particularly when he comes back. And so, Lord, we ask that that would be soon. In Jesus' name. Amen.